COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Symptoms of this respiratory disease may include fever, cough, and shortness of breath. These symptoms may show up 2 to 14 days after exposure. If you are experiencing these symptoms and have come into contact or are in an area with an ongoing outbreak, please call a hotline and or consult with a physician. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces. For more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. You are listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y. L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, Epic discusses his struggles as a child, being abused by his mother's boyfriend. Then he tells the story of his success as a rapper and podcaster. Then after the break, Don tells his story of his struggles as a comedian and owning a comedy club. He also discusses his acting career, which is flourishing at the moment, as well as his podcast. Both men have overcome great odds and have succeeded, finally, in their endeavors to find their mark in the world. Here are their stories. Uh, So my name is Epic. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, My story... Usually, uh, it seems like, Michael, uh, you have uh, one specific story that kind of is pivotal in someone's life. And, and my story is a little unique because I, I think that throughout my life, I've had a few major things happen that literally, if they wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't be where I am right now. So... I guess I'm going to start from the beginning and then work my way through. And then I guess if um, there's anything that's boring, you could cut out later. So basically, I was born in 83. And when I first arrived on this earth, uh, it was without, it, it was with a lot of complications. I was born without a soft spot in, in my skull, which means that when you're born, there's a soft spot the soft part of your skull for your brain to have room to grow. Uh, I did not have that. So at six months old, they had to remove an entire bone out of my skull. It was very risky surgery. I I was able to go through it and recover. And uh, for a while I had seizures 
and I had a lot of other medical issues uh, just just literally within the first year of my life. I mean, they weren't even sure I was going to make it. Um, they, they weren't sure if I would have any brain damage. They weren't sure if I was going to be able to talk, walk, any any of that. So the, the fact that I'm here today immediately is, is a blessing because just in my first year, uh, that that happened to me. And um, a lot of people actually asked me about the scar on top of my head and um, that that's what it's from. They literally had to uh, use a scalpel. They, they slipped me from basically one ear to the other on the top of my head. And they, had, uh, they pulled down the skin down off the front of my face and in the back they had to basically saw out a part of my my skull so that my brain would have room to grow um, my goodness that's at six <laughs> six months you were that's a tiny thing six then. months old yes so it, it is a miracle that i'm here today that that's like the first significant thing that happened in my life okay then we moved to i was let's see i was probably about age 11 okay um, my, my mom, bless her soul, you know, like, I mean, she's still with us, but it, it was always rough growing up. You know, we're, we're a very poor family. Uh, we were on welfare, um, food stamps, all of that. So, I mean, just making it day by day. Like I remember growing up, you know, we had, we didn't have milk. We had powdered milk. We had the government block cheese. I'm sure some people remember that. You know, we we just we we were really just a, a very low income family, and then she ended up with um, a real jerk. Let's just say that a, a real real piece of work. This guy that she was with for a long time, and he was very abusive, very very abusive, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. He beat my mom all the time in front of us behind our backs it didn't really matter uh there was a lot of times where we would be in the next room and i i swear we thought he was killing her so that was that was a big pivotal point in my life where i kind of i kind of evaluated things at an early age and uh, realized that wasn't the life for me I was physically abusive, abused, I'm sorry. You know, the things he would do, there, there was things he would do, like, um, well, he had this uh, spiked belt, and he would beat the shit out of me uh, with it quite often, really, just for no reason at all. I mean, there, there was times where um, we had to be really quiet. We had to be really quiet in the morning, and... If we woke him up, that was it. So we learned to be quiet. Like if we got up, you know, we were real little, nine, ten years old. So, you know, we got up early. That's what kids do. You know, we get up at the ass crack of dawn. We go try to watch cartoons or something. And, and you know, we would do one little thing and he'd wake up and that was it, man. That was, you know, pound town. You know, the black eyes, busted lip. You name it, you know. Um, uh, what was cool, though, was 
when he used a spike belt and stuff, you know, he, he would definitely make sure it wasn't a covered part of her body. You know, there was times he locked me in the closet. Uh, he would call me a faggot. He would call me gay. Let's say I wasn't worth anything. So that was a, another pivotal part because um, after a couple years of that, I ran away. I ran away from home. I ended up moving in with my dad. And honestly, I think if I had stayed there, I probably wouldn't have been here today. I mean, he more than likely would have killed me because that surgery that I had when I was six months old, well, the thing about that was they had to remove that bone. Well, they forgot to put a bone back in. So in the, in the top right side of my uh, forehead, there was a, I, I would say it was a two, two and a half centimeter hole that literally was a soft spot that if, if you hit that hard enough or you punch me or hit me or if I played a physical sport, I could die. So, and he used to beat the shit out of me like it was nothing, you know? So the that's another <laughs> thing that happened in my life that I'm like, wow, I'm really lucky to be here. And so I, I end up moving in with my dad. I'm like 10 and a half, 11 years old. And it wasn't working out there either. So I end up moving again in with my grandma. I would say that I would not be where I am today for sure if it wasn't for her. She's not with us anymore. So unfortunately, she won't hear this podcast. And, you know, I, I give her a lot of credit because uh, she raised me, you know, like uh, into who I am today. Um, I became a musician because of her, I believe, because she was she was the first one to buy me instruments. She bought me my first keyboard that I still play today. Not, I mean, not the same keyboard, but I, you know, she bought me a guitar that I still kind of play. I'm not very good at it anymore. I, I mostly play piano. And and she encouraged me, you know, like I, uh, she saw the best in me when I didn't even see it, you know, because when the problem is when you're abused, a lot of times you, uh, you think it's your fault, you know, that gets a little hard, you know, like to overcome that obstacle. And I went through a lot of uh, anger issues and I went through a lot of uh, depression. There was times that I, you know, even after moving in with my grandparents and everything, that I would try to commit suicide. It's a crazy time, man. So, it, it, you know, fast forward, you know, I graduated high school. I graduated a year, um, a year ahead, actually. I, I was 17 years old. I just turned 17, graduated high school. Um, and I started uh, rapping, actually, when I was about 12. And when I was 12, I realized that I could rap. It was, I was horrible then, looking back at it now, but back then I was I thought I was awesome 
and it was just an outlet for me uh, to express all the stuff that I was going through. Uh, fast forward, I graduate high school. You know, I had kind of made a name for myself of being a rapper. Um, back back in uh, 2000, <laughs> when I graduated, there wasn't a whole lot of white rappers. So basically everybody compared me to Eminem. That, that's basically who was hot. And I mean, at least it wasn't a vanilla ice, I guess. I, I mean, I guess that's a, that's a good thing. But, and then another pivotal point, I think, in my life was when I uh, found out that my ex was pregnant. And I had been basically working as a rap artist. I was, uh, you know, doing shows. I was making a little money, but it wasn't enough to really support um, a baby. So I was kind of doing both for a while. I was, I was working. I was uh, making music then became my second child uh, a couple years later. Then I moved to North Carolina. It was a big move for me. There was a, there was a lot of struggles I was still even going through with, you know, um, poverty. I mean, I still never really, you know, as smart as I was as um, me graduating early, you know, opened me you know like I could have went to just about any college I wanted to with full scholarship everything but I I, I thought I was going to be this big time rapper and I decided not to to do that I want to pursue my dreams so then I end up getting with uh, my ex I end up getting her pregnant in three months <laughs> like like the awesome thing to do and from that point on, I was just trying to worry about taking care of my kids. I moved to North Carolina. I met this uh, really big local rapper at the time. He, I, I had a rap group before then, and we did well. We did well. We opened up for a lot of national acts. I, I met Joe, um, who was, who still is. Uh, one of my best friends. So I guess let me let me backtrack a little bit. I'm sorry. Some of this stuff is uh, out of order. So let's back up a little bit. I had a group called Division Three, and this was back in like 2001. We released our first album, and uh, we we opened up for a lot of uh, major acts that you would know today, like Mike Jones, and there was. Uh, T.I., Devin the Dude, Tila. I mean, tons of people. We were we were literally next in line to blow up. It just always seemed like, though, when I was right there, it, it just never happened. We, we had this agent, this manager, or whatever you want to call her, and uh, we had an offer from Bad Boy South, that which, if anybody remembers, uh, Bad Boy, which Puff Daddy or Diddy or whatever you want to call him now, uh, he was doing something with uh, Southern rappers. So, so actually, Young Young Jeezy uh, came from that label. So we were going to get signed to that, but our agent, before even asking us, declined the offer. Before even like consulting with us, before anything, she. Uh, Declined the offer. We found out about it a few weeks later when we couldn't do anything about it. 
and we we immediately fired fired her. We released one other album after that, and then I moved to North Carolina. In North Carolina, I met a rapper named, and it it was crazy because, like, I can't even make this stuff up. You know, some you know sometimes I'm in like the right place at the right time for some of this stuff. So I'm literally in a Walmart, and he's in a Walmart parking lot, and he's selling CDs, and he comes up to me, and I buy a CD from him, and I tell him I'm a rapper, and we literally click. I get his number, he comes over, we record a song, and then we we, we form a group called LES. We add a uh, a female rapper named uh, Lala, and we blew up in North Carolina. I mean, it was crazy. We were doing big car shows in front of five, 6,000 people. We were touring up and down the East Coast. I mean, we were doing so much. It, it was crazy. And then another pivotal moment was uh, when betrayed me and I had broken up with my ex in North Carolina and I, I was with uh, another woman that I was engaged to and then I find out that he was sending her inappropriate pictures if you can catch my drift so with that being said I end up moving back to Cleveland got back with Division 3 and we almost blew up again we had our own record label. Uh, we did that for three or four years. And then I got kicked out of my own record label. And then I think the last thing after after years later, after um, you know, after everything was and I was kicked out of the record label and there's a couple years that went by, I really didn't know what was going on. I just I was a Lyft driver. I don't know if you if you have Lyft down where you live or anything like that. Um, it's like Uber, you know, it's Lyft and Uber. That's pretty much the two big ones. Um, I was a Lyft driver, and I met a radio show co-host, and it was it was a local show, um, but they're on iHeartMedia. So I met Erica Lauren. She's a co-host of the Alan Cox Show. Just randomly, you know, she was just one of my rides to pop up. I go there, I pick her up, and we start talking because I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I don't know, I, I get along with everybody. So we get to talking, and she tells me about her show, and I had never even heard of it before. I don't, I've been in town for a while, but uh, they were on a station that I typically didn't listen to at the time, uh, WMMS. Uh, they're kind of like, they're not classic rock. I wouldn't say that. They're they're definitely a rock station. They're with iHeartMedia and everything. But she told me about her show, and I looked into it, and I literally fell in love with the show. I it's crazy. I I end up calling in, talking to them, everything, and it was that moment that I realized that I wanted to, I wanted to do that. I was like, you know, uh, it was something that I kind of did even as, you know, when I was little growing up, um, I would record songs off the radio 
And then I would record me like I was a DJ. And and then I would, I, at the time, you know, my, my real name's Thomas Garski, and I, I called it the Thomas Garski Show. And I would just say random things. You know, I was by myself, man. I was, you know, I just would record myself playing music and, and doing these little stupid segments and stuff and, and talking about whatever I wanted to talk about. It was another outlet. I guess I had a, it was another outlet that I had. So I, I woke up and I was like, I'm going to do this. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make a radio show. And I did little by little. Um, I called up um, my, one of my best friends growing up, Goldie. Uh, she actually at one point lived downstairs uh, from me when I was about 10 years old before I, before I ran away. And she knew all about the, the stuff I was dealing with, with um, my mom's boyfriend and all that. And, you know, she decided to be on the show. And then she was like, hey, you know, do you mind if I bring my friend Tokar? I'm like, sure, you know. And that's that's basically how the Epic Radio Show started. I I started it started off with literally two mics, and and it was just recording, uh, recording on software or whatever, and I would mix it. And now, like two and a half years later, we have cameras and. There's like six six of us, I believe. There's me, my wife, Ashley. Um, there's uh, Jay Val. There's Mark Warren. There's Chris Kettler. There's David Franks. There's Larry Brazil. I think that's seven or eight. Um, I, we have other people that work with us. There's uh, Connor and there's Rachel. Connor heads up the the podcast side, the, the just the audio only for Spotify and iHeartMedia and Anchor and stuff and uh, and uh, Rachel's basically like our marketing person and little by little man I, I invested probably over 15 grand into this all together I literally took part of my basement and, and built a studio we literally constructed walls and put up doors and uh, painted the walls green for the green screen and there's all this audio padding we have an on-air sign that hangs <laughs> like it, it, it it's like an actual radio studio like and I it, it is so crazy to me that I've made it this far you know I, I've been able to buy a house not from of course just doing the podcast or anything but I've been I've been able to do all of this and it was crazy that I made it past my first year it, it's incredible because I never I mean nobody ever thought I was going to make anything of myself like I, I've always been hated on like forever you know like in school I was bullied you know I I don't know it, it was just crazy man you know like it, I, I don't even know I don't even know sometimes how lucky I am I guess until I really sit back and, and think about things and I think that if anybody out there 
if they ever have doubts about their self or if they if they ever think they can't do anything like i i'm living proof that you can literally do anything because nobody ever even thought i was going to live past a year much less do half of the things that i've done you know i i've literally met i've met celebrities i've traveled all over the u.s i i've talked to people that i i've you know it, it's crazy you know like i've just I, i've met incredible people i've talked to phenomenal people you know like I, I see all these people with talent and stuff and and being surrounded by that and it's it's humbling you know it's very humbling to me and like i don't i don't even know where to begin to to thank whoever whatever's out there that gave this little this little five foot seven dude from cleveland ohio um all these blessings let me ask you are you still rapping um now after i was kicked out of my label i did try to kind of rap on my own but I don't know. I think after all of the stuff I had been through with the music industry, the the ups and downs, I kind of lost. I, I kind of, you know, in the first time in my life, music was always something I fell back on. But at this moment, like, it's not now. You know, like, uh, I'd say after a year, year and a half after I, uh, I, I got kicked from the label, I stopped rapping and that's kind of where I was at my crossroads. I didn't know what to do after that. That's kind of how I fell into podcasting because I I really was lost. And honestly, if it wasn't for Erica Lauren meeting her, I don't think I would be doing this. So I kind of owe her thanks. And uh, even, even the cast of uh, Alan Cox show. I mean, I I've talked to them, I've talked to um, like, um, uh, Bill and Alan a couple times and they've always been super nice uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of people that are like you know because they're you know they're national they're a national show and like you know there's a there's a lot of people that you know you try to talk to somebody and they're they're just really like oh like you know these peasants you know <laughs> but they're they're really down to earth and they're really cool people and uh, I have tremendous respect for them. Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm also Chris. And together we do a comedy podcast called Cooking with Grief. Each week we dive into four surprising facts about anything from science to history to the weird world we live in, making jokes about all of it as we go along. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also find us on Twitter at Cooking with Grief. No G on cooking. Glitter, apparently, is so unique that it can be effectively used as forensic evidence. The Bank of England's chief economist has urged to start using people's Spotify playlists as a way of measuring the economy. In China, Avengers has been translated as Fulian, or Women's Federation. Not only did the Russians capture the uh, Crimean Peninsula, they also captured some Ukrainian military dolphins. In Pinocchio, in the film becomes a real boy. In the original, it ends with a cat and a fox hanging him from a tree. <laughs> just... Scientists have wiped a snail's memory. <laughs> in 
in Slytherin's going, can we have an extensive <laughs> series of tunnels sort of wide enough to fit a giant people-killing snake? Where do you fall on the, uh, on the scone-scone debate? Scone, obviously. Oh, I love scone. So, what have you got to lose? Give us a try. Nothing to lose but your sweet, precious time. Yeah, that's true. Everybody on the train, all aboard, you snooze, you lose. Buy my loot boxes. Not you. Get off the train. Don't let him on. Oh, okay. All right, listen here, Greenhorn. I'm going to teach you everything you need to know about how to conduct a podcast. First thing you need to know is never stay on topic ever. Uh, sir. What do you want? Uh, people are complaining about the Venom movie still. I don't care. Feed them Justice League or something. Get them off my back. Copy. But, sir, it says in the book that you need to stay on topic as a podcast. Screw the book, Greenhorn. The book was written by dinosaurs. Second thing you need to know is never report news that's not at least two or three weeks old. Uh, sir. What do you want? People are complaining about the Pokemon Go update. I don't care. Just... Gag them! Or something! Shut them up! On it. Uh, sir? What do you want, Greenhorn? I think the train might be going off the rails. That's exactly how we run this show. This is the Crazy Train of Thought podcast, brought to you by the Idiot Savants. Find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. www.crazytrainofthought.com Uh, my name is Don Smith. I am, uh, I'm calling from Dayton, Ohio. I'm a stand-up comic here locally as well as an actor. I uh, spent some time as a writer. Uh, it's all things that I've, that I've wanted to do for a long time. Years ago, well, back in uh, well, elementary school, actually, I was kind of a strange kid. While most of my friends were uh, reading uh, Super Fudge and that kind of thing, I was reading Edgar Allan Poe and loving it. Uh, I also had an uncle that was a poet, and I kind of got, I, I really looked up to him for those kind of things, and uh, so I started writing poetry before I was a teenager, and as a teenager I had a lot of them published, uh, had a lot of uh, a lot of short stories published back then. Uh, I wanted to be an English major when I got out of high school, and I started that for a little while, and uh, then life happened, as life often does. I uh, met someone, I moved to uh, Florida and got married, uh, moved back to Ohio, got divorced, uh, a lot of things, a lot of things occurred. I finally did go back and finish my, uh, my English degree when I was 38 years old, uh, just because it's something I'd always wanted to, wanted to have. And it was an English degree with a, with a fiction writing background. I haven't had a lot of my fiction published lately. The last thing I had published was a, a short play I wrote called Little Blue Pills, but that's been a few years ago still. I've also, I've, I've always wanted to be a comedian, you know, for a long time. My, my dad and I used to watch a lot of the old comics in the 80s, really looked up to like Billy Elmer and uh, Gallagher. When, before sledge matic took over his entire show, and he was actually more than just a prop comic. I thought he was brilliant. And that was that was kind of one of the ones that I looked up to early on. Also, Richard Jenny was always a favorite of mine. Unfortunately, unfortunately lost Richard Jenny several years ago. But I never got the courage to start stand-up comedy until much later in life. When I was 25, I started acting in local theater just on a whim. I had never 
really had any acting experience at all. I walked into Dayton Theater Guild not knowing anyone, and I ended up getting cast and uh, as the narrator and probably, I think, seven additional parts in a really wild play called Epic Proportions, where most of the actors played seven to eight characters. Had a lot of fun with that. I really got bitten by the acting bug, and I started acting a lot in local theater and tried a few films. And then, of course, life happened again, got remarried. And that's when I went back and finished my bachelor's degree. There was a course in my English, on my pursuit of my English degree, there was a course that was labeled as comedy writing. Uh, so I signed up for that because I thought that would be a lot of fun. And it turns out when I walked in, the course was actually basics of stand-up comedy rather than just comedy writing. So I went ahead and went with it. And the uh, because that that was the push I would have needed to get myself on stage to perform comedy, even though I'd wanted to for some time. And the final exam for that class was actually a four minutes four minute set at the Dayton Funny Bone which I uh, had a lot of fun with, uh, had an actual, ha actually had a really good set. And then a few weeks later, I tried a set at uh, Wiley's Comedy Club in Dayton as well and had a lot of fun. And then, of course, my third set was at a bar called The Chapter in Fairborn, Ohio, and it was the worst set of my life. And had I not already had several things lined up and several more shows ready to go, uh, <laughs> I probably would have quit because it was that miserable a show. At the time that I started performing stand-up comedy, I couldn't get out and do as many shows as I really wanted to. So in order to stay connected with the local comedy scene, because that's how you continue to get booked and you get on more shows by staying connected to everybody, I decided, it was about five years ago now, I decided that I would start a radio show at our... Uh, at WWSU, which is uh, Wright State University's campus radio station. My first show actually aired January 9th of 2015, and it was an absolute disaster. I could not remember how to play a song. I could not remember half the controls. I actually got locked out of the studio uh, with my guest. We were standing there for probably 20 minutes trying to get in the studio because nobody gave me door codes and nobody was in the studio at the moment. So my guest was actually a manager at Wiley's Comedy Club at the time. So we finally got in. We did the show. It was a complete disaster. I don't think he ever came back on the radio show with me. I had, after about the first three or four shows, I really started to have fun with it. And I brought a lot of, a lot of local comics that I knew came in. And we just had fun getting to know each other. It was more of a conversation. It was never really question and answer kind of an interview. We were just, I was trying to get to know all these people so that I could get booked on more and more and more comedy shows. I kept the radio show going. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in English. And I shortly after that took a job on campus in their HVAC department because I'm in the real world, I'm an, a heating and air conditioning technician and an electrician and plumber. That's how I pay for all the fun things that I get to do. I took a job on campus and as a result, I was able to re-enroll for free. So when I re-enrolled, I was able to get the radio show going again with only about probably a two month break. So I started that again. Uh, just kept running with it. About two and a half years ago, 
Wiley's was sold to some new owners. And shortly after that, one of the, one of the new owners approached me about uh, buying in as a partner. I was really excited and I decided to sign on. I talked it over with my wife and uh, she had no objections then <laughs> that rapidly changed. But I was supposed to be a silent partner when I first bought in. I was told I can be as involved or as uninvolved as I wanted. And just, I, they basically needed the kind of an infusion of cash to keep the doors from shutting. So I got involved in that and almost immediately, my two partners that I'm currently with in that, uh, we had to, we had to rearrange some things and one of our partners had to go. So unfortunately, we parted ways with him, but he was the one that was running the day-to-day. So I now have two partners that own Wiley's along with me, and they are both out of state. I am the only one of the owners that is close to the club at all. So a large portion of the day-to-day business operations now fell to me while I'm trying to get stage time, doing a weekly radio show, acting every chance I can get, and still working a full-time job. At the time, I was still a full-time grad student. So it came to a point where I was actually working on a uh, on an MBA, on a, a master's in business, and uh, I, had to, I had to drop. It was between, okay, do I work on my business degree while I let my actual business fail? So I made the choice to uh, drop out of school to continue to run Wiley's Comedy Club because it's the oldest comedy club in the state of Ohio. I'm, I didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to close down on my watch. That's not the way I want to be remembered in the Dayton comedy scene as the guy that let Wiley shut down. So since then, things have been extremely hectic just trying to keep up with everything I have going on even dropping out of school it wasn't enough to really do everything I needed to do and a lot of things kind of spiraled out of control for me and it it got to the point where uh, earlier this year I decided I was going to get out of state more I was going to get out and perform more comedy because that's really one of the things I wanted to do And I signed up for the World Series of Comedy so that it would actually, I could get out to some of the satellites and I got to perform at one satellite before they found out I owned a comedy club and had to disqualify me. But I did get to perform at Zany's in St. Charles, Illinois. So that was the first time I got to uh, perform comedy outside of the state of Ohio. And I was really excited about that. But in the meantime, I'm still doing the radio show. I started about three years ago releasing it as a podcast as well. Each week now I bring on several comedians as well as I usually have a guest co-host of the week that comes on with me who's been on the show before. That's the only requirement I have of a guest co-host is you have to have been on the show before. If I enjoyed your company, I'll have you on as a guest co-host. What's the name of the podcast? Uh, the podcast is called The Life Radio Show. It's... It can be found on pretty much pretty much any platform that you find podcasts. I'm on uh, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Spreaker. I'm sure there are some that I missed that I'm not on, but I that's that's another one of the things I need to do is get on and make sure that it gets to all the ones that I have missed and make sure I have everything. We we uh, 
I would say for that, if you want to get involved in the in the podcast, uh, follow the Life 106.9 on uh, Facebook and uh, Don Smith Comedy on Twitter because I always post the episodes on there. And we go Facebook Live when we record the show live in the WWSU studio. We have cameras up and we actually go Facebook Live with it if you guys want to see my pretty face. And who doesn't? <laughs> but wh- where was I? Oh, I was talking about bringing the guests on but I performed at Zany's and then uh, you know my my wife got increasingly frustrated about all the time that I was away from home both performing plus with the club plus with the radio show and you know several movies that I'd been working on in fact just in the past three months I believe uh, I was in five movies and TV shows that were released I'm on a TV show that you can find right now on Amazon and Amazon Prime called uh, Boggy Creek, the Bigfoot series. I get to be a featured lead on one of their episodes, which was a lot of fun. That's working with Henrik Kuto, who I've worked with many times. Wonderful young filmmaker, a lot of fun to work with. I work with William Lee a lot. I think he recently had four of his films just release, and I think of those four, three of those uh, you can find me in. I'm in Black Mamba. Uh, there's one called The Goocher that's getting ready to come out, which is kind of a horror movie, kind of a zombie thing. And uh, we're still uh, Six Feet Below Hell is one of the biggest successes that we had. It's actually been available in the Redbox kiosk for uh, almost three years now, or two and a half years, I think. But that was... That was one of the most fun times I ever had in film. Eventually, of course, things with the wife just continued to get worse and worse. And 2019 became kind of my year of transition and disaster because uh, she moved out back in June. I've been kind of shaken since and things are kind of keeping busy with everything that I have going on. I think is the only way that I've managed to keep any sanity at all is just by by hitting everything I'm doing and hitting it extra hard, you know, with everything that's been happening with the life radio show lately. And some of the guests I've had on, I've actually had to, the way I structure the show, I do a two hour live show in the radio studio. And then I break it into two one hour podcast episodes. So I've been releasing two, two episodes a week of the podcast I recently started having to release a third episode because I've been getting so many, so many great guests on lately that I don't have enough, enough of the live shows to get them all on. I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I think the, the change in my life that happened when I bought the comedy club was just, it wasn't anything that I expected at all. Cause again, I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be just a, a silent partner and then all of a sudden I got thrust into everything and I don't think my wife was able to understand what I'd gotten myself into and how difficult it would be to get myself out of it because it's not like it's not something I can just walk away because there are so many people that rely on it for income and they rely on it for so many other things you know the comics rely on it as a as part of their home you know they're Dayton comics that consider Wiley as their home base and I, I can't just walk away and let it crumble. I don't have it in me to do that. And the past several months of my marriage, that was all she was expecting is for me to just walk away from the club and let it fall to rubble. It was very unfortunate. Things had to go the way they went. 
has definitely been a major shakeup this year. Yeah, still reeling a little bit, but staying as busy as I'm able to stay is a very helpful thing. I'm sorry to hear that. It's always, like you said, it's a difficult thing to go through. And, you know, when you have a relationship that ends after so many years, a lot that you think about that you, that you're so used to and that you're going to miss and that you're not going to be a part of your life anymore. Were there children involved? Uh, fortunately not. I had two wives, no children. <laughs> I, that's, that's one saving grace is at least there weren't any children involved because that always makes things, of course, makes things bad for the children and makes things worse for everybody involved. So Wiley is still running. It's still up and going. Uh, Wiley's is still up and running. It's, uh, in fact, I, I'm hosting the show this Friday for a comedian named Jeff Oske. And uh, then Saturday, uh, Todd McComas will be there. We do a uh, we do an annual toy drive show, and we collect toys to donate to House of Bread, one of our charities that we donate to. And they, uh, I get to be part of that show. I still get up and perform at Wiley's as often as I can without without pushing anybody else out of the way because I don't want to be that kind of club owner. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's still up and going. Uh, still, it's going a lot stronger than it was because when I when I first got involved. Every week, we didn't know if we were going to have to shut it down. Every week, we were afraid that the doors were going to close and we wouldn't be able to open them back up. But uh, we're going a lot stronger than we were right now. You gave us an idea that uh, of a short film career. Were you ever into the theater? Like, did you do comedy theater as well as stand-up? Uh, yeah, in my uh, in my mid twenties, I was twenty five years old, and I first uh, first got involved in the local theater. Uh, Dayton Theater Guild had an audition. I just happened to show up, and <laughs> I it was fun because I walked in, and the local theater, if you if for anybody that's been involved, they know that it's everybody knows everybody. It's like a family. And I walked in and I didn't know a single person in there. They handed me a sheet to fill out where I could list my previous theater experience. Well, I'd never done any of this, not in high school or junior high, anything. So I said, well, I've never done anything like this. And they said, well, it doesn't matter if even it's in high school. I said, nope, (laughs) still nothing. So I handed them back a blank piece of paper with my name and number on it. And I stepped into the theater to, to audition and they were just doing cold reads. Of course, it, it's theater, so I show up 15 minutes early and nobody's there till about 10 minutes after. <laughs> and I walk in, I introduce myself to the stage managers there, the producer, the uh, director, and I sit down and wait, and then other people start to show up. And every, every person that came in not only knew each other, but they all knew the director and the producer and the stage manager, everybody on a first-name basis. And the whole time I'm thinking, it's kind of pointless for me to be here because I really don't think I have a chance. I've never done this before, and I know absolutely no one. But I went ahead. Rather than leave, I went ahead and auditioned just just for the heck of it to see what would happen. And uh, I ended up getting cast in uh, eight parts, including the narrator. That was my first stage experience at 25 years old. A week, it was in, uh, actually it was a week after September 11th of 2001. We put on a comedy, which was a weird time to put on a comedy, right after 9-11. The, the, yeah, the, the show must go on, as they say, and it was, uh, people needed to laugh, so 
we had fun. It was, it ended up being a good show. One of the things that helped me, because of course, stage fright, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to get out there and freeze or blank or anything. We're backstage, and of course, I they we pre-recorded all my narrator uh, lines. So I'm, because I'm also one of the first people coming on stage for this show. So as I'm backstage waiting in the wings, I can hear my voice booming over the speaker, and people are already laughing, which is good because it was a comedy, <laughs> and that that really helped me relax. And you know, then the whole time I'm thinking, okay, I may actually get through this. <laughs> And uh, it was a lot of fun. It really was. And uh, I did a handful more shows with the uh, Dayton Theater Guild. I also did a lot of shows with uh, Brookville Community Theater, Troy Civic Theater. I did several shows with them. Uh, the thing with live theater is it requires such a time commitment because you're in rehearsals for a minimum of two months. You know, plus you have you have tech week you have hell week you have you know there's so much you have to commit to it and with my work schedule and everything that I've had going on lately I it's been a long time since I've able been able to think about uh, performing live theater and I really miss that that's actually when I started doing that I fell in love with theater I started doing stand-up comedy. I mean, I always kind of wanted to, but the main reason I started it is because even though I couldn't get up and perform theater, I still had the itch to be on stage. And with stand-up, you can do that on your own. You can come up with your own material, and that's that's what makes it such a different animal from theater. I mean, yes, you're on stage, but comedy, you're on stage bearing your soul because that's all your material. It is nothing but you and a mic stand. And that's so much more terrifying than reading words somebody else wrote and memorizing them and just emoting. Uh, your play that you wrote, what was it about? Uh, my play that I wrote was called Little Blue Pills. I wrote that when I was... Uh, I believe I, yeah, I had already actually graduated with my bachelor's degree, and this was a class that I that I was taking as a grad student when I came back, and Wright State was paying for it when I worked there, and that I was uh, late 30s, I think I was 39 when I wrote that, and of course, the little blue pill has a lot of different connotations. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, Viagra, as a man that's yeah, as a man pushing his forties, uh, and at the time I was uh, I was very overweight. I was about uh, 345 pounds at the time. Actually, beginning of this year, I was about 325, and with everything that's happened throughout this year, I was at 250. I'm I'm up probably about. 255 260 now but I was at 250 in the middle of August just from all the all the stress and everything that has happened this year so I've dropped a lot of weight at the time I mean I was you know when, when you get older and you're out you're a little out of shape you know it's a uh, the joke that sometimes you might need that little blue, little blue pill but the play itself is about a misunderstanding between a husband and wife that uh ultimately causes disaster in their marriage it's written somewhat like a comedy but it's a little bit of a dark comedy because there are funny moments but it's funny moments over top of a very serious situation kind of a dramedy yeah a little bit of a dramedy and i i keep 
the humor all the way up to the end and then just drop that final bombshell where it does not end on a funny note but uh, I really I really enjoyed writing that it's only a 10 minute play it's not a full play but uh, just a short play uh, it got published I can't even remember where it got published because <laughs> it's been a few years but I enjoyed writing uh, that was that was the first time I'd ever written drama or ever written a play was it ever produced? It was never produced that I know of. <laughs> Nobody asked if they could produce it. But, you know, I, I thought at one time about turning it into a uh, short film. It's just, uh, again, it's it's finding the time to do those things with everything else going on. Yeah, with so many film festivals now, it's that seems to be the way to go. Uh, we have a local yeah. uh, film festival here that's a short film festival, and uh, it does really, really well in this area. But I know there's, yeah. all, you know, all across the country, these um, short films are are really getting more clout. Yeah, yeah, they are. Which uh, I, I mentioned, one of the directors that I work with a lot is uh, he has a lot of strong opinions on short films because only, he only makes feature films. <laughs> but it, I, I love working with him. But uh, yes, very, very opinionated when it comes to short films. So how but, did you get into the film industry? Shortly after I started uh, performance stand-up comedy, I went actually to, uh, there was a premiere of a movie, of the independent filmmaker's movie right near my house. And years ago when I was acting, I had auditioned for a couple and I was in a couple that never actually got finished. Well, I walked into this premiere of, uh, it was Henrik Kuto, who's a local filmmaker here, it was one of his movies. I can't even remember which one, but it's it's been about five years ago, I think, four or five years ago, I, I walked in and as soon as I walk in, I run into Eric Whiting, who I worked with on a movie years ago that never actually got finished. And it was actually before Eric even went into film school. And he edited a lot. He edits a lot of Henrik's movies. So he was at the premiere and we got to talking. I got introduced to Henrik. And uh, next thing I know, I get cast in just just small parts. And uh, I think Calamity Jane's Revenge was the first one I was in with him. Uh, and I got to be killed by uh, Aaron R. Ryan, who's a good friend of mine now. Is that my phone? I am terribly sorry. Let's see, I, I'm always getting messages. That's that's another problem doing phone interviews. <laughs> but but no, I, I got introduced to Henrik Kuto and. Uh, Got cast in Calamity Jane's Revenge just as a small part. I did a handful of other ones with him, just as small roles. And I auditioned for, uh, there was a movie that William Lee was making called uh, Badfellas. And I auditioned for that, and he loved my audition tape, and he cast me in the part. And then, because the guy that was playing my uh, my brother in the movie, something came up with him and he wasn't able to do it. And so William just rewrote the movie without my character. So, <laughs> without my brother's character and without my character. So I wasn't able to be in Badfellas. Didn't even get to go into uh, production. Didn't even get to go into filming with it. But uh, but that's fine. He, he remembered me when he started doing the... Uh, Three Knee Deep, which was the next one he did, and I got to play a part in that, which uh, was the first one he got out on Redbox. Now, Williams have been making uh, feature films for 40-plus years, and he gets he gets his movies out there, so it's de it's definitely one, if you're in a movie, if you're in one of his movies, you're 
probably going to get out there. So I filmed three knee deep and it had some success at Redbox. There was an acting intensive workshop that I went to and I got cast in it. I got to know another director that was actually running that workshop, uh, Lana Reed, who was making a movie at the time called, uh, the working title was A Dead Man in a Western Town, or A Dead Husband in the Western Town. Uh, it was released as uh, Western World, and I got to be part of that, which was a lot of fun. And just, I just kept, you know, through the radio show, through comedy, I just kept getting connected to more and more uh, directors and more and more actors and more and more filmmakers that were involved in some way. And just things kind of snowball, and now I know several people to where... I'm probably, I think I've filmed maybe six movies this year. A lot of it just, you know, walk-on roles, minor speaking characters, but I'm definitely getting a lot of them. And a lot of a lot of what helps is being a part owner of Wiley's. We have that location at our disposal. So uh, I know Black Mamba, when we filmed that, I would say probably 60% of that movie was filmed either in Wiley's or in the, just in that very neighborhood with Wiley's as a home base. And that's what, you know, that's one of the things with independent film that's really hard is coming up with locations. And one of the good things about William is he loves using Wiley's as a location. And I'm, I'm more than happy with that. <laughs> but, uh, I got to work with Henrik Kuto again a, a little while ago and he, uh, he directed a, a TV series that's now available on uh, Amazon called Boggy Creek. And I'm a featured lead in, in episode two. And I, when I watched it, because it, it had been a, couple, a little while since we'd filmed that one, and when I was watching the episodes, I didn't realize how much of that was actually filmed at Wiley's. Because Wiley's Comedy Club, they used that as part of their local bar on the show so you know it, it's good to get exposure for the club as well by doing things like this and that i think that has helped somewhat as far as getting life back into this comedy club that was near disaster uh, i i remember a film when i was a kid called legend of boggy creek and it yeah. was filmed it was filmed by a local director jim mccullough and um about falk arkansas and sightings of bigfoot is that yep, the same thing? It, it's very similar. Yes, it's Boggy Creek, the Bigfoot series, and it's uh, it's it's set in Arkansas. So, <laughs> yeah, so that that's that's very similar, very similar. That's that must be a, a ongoing legend then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, every time I go through Falk, I think about it because I mean, it really made an impression on me when I was a kid because it just terrified me. But uh, what I was going to ask you about now is a little more about your poetry. I know it's something that's very important to you. Do you are you still actively writing? Are you pursuing any collections that you're trying to to get together to put out a chapbook or a lot of a lot of the poetry I've written is uh, you know from years and years ago. I probably wouldn't like a lot of it to see the the light of day. I occasionally uh, I occasionally get time to write. I'm trying to find my way back into it. It's just, it's been so long and, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of the things I've been through, I don't know if I'm in the right state of mind to even write about it yet. 
I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to get there again. But uh, it it is something that's important to me. It's uh, it's it's just been it's it's been too long. A lot of that's my own doing, just by getting so busy. Because I I whenever whenever something an opportunity comes along that sounds like it's going to be something fun, I have a really hard time saying no. I don't want to do that <laughs> because I really want to do all of the things. I think that's been one of my biggest issues is that uh, deciding what I'm able to do and what I'm not able to do. And that's that's how my plate got so full to where sometimes it's all I can do to get done with the things I need to do or the things that I have to do. What does your future hold? I've been asked that several times and my answer is pretty much if, I don't know. If, if I look... If I look five years into the future and I'm still doing the things I'm doing now with the comedy and the movies and the comedy club and, and everything's still going the way it's going now, I'm perfectly happy with that. I mean, would I, would I like uh, more successful things? Absolutely. But I enjoy so many of the things I do that... Yeah, I stay very busy doing them, but I'm still doing it as a labor of love. It's not something that I'm doing and feeling bad about doing it. It's something I'm doing, and half the time I can't believe that I have the opportunity to do these things. And if I if I get five years into the future, ten years into the future, and I'm still doing these things that I love that mean this much to me, I mean... That is success, I guess. As a comedian, what would be the ultimate goal that you would have? Say, for instance, uh, going on Saturday Night Live or something like that. Is that something you look to the future, hopefully? I try not <laughs> I try not to look too much to the future in that. I've Because uh, another part of that answer is I, I've been flying by the seat of my pants for probably five solid years now and I'm not sure how else to do it I mean I, I looking into the future it's it's really hard to it's really hard to say what I would consider my ultimate goal because I'm I'm enjoying the ride as it is I can't I can't really picture what the end game would be 